All right, so fun fact. I uh, interviewed famous people for a living between 2009 and 2011. For those of you who love Hollywood, um, it's one of those fun trivia things to note that your pastor used to be represented by the William Morris Endeavor Agency. I will never forget the first time I walked into that building. I was, you know, you drive into that gated area you see on Entourage, if you've ever watched that show, and you sit on those couches and wait for Ari Gold to come pick you up. Well, that exact scene happened to me, and uh, we ended up represented by WME, which was quite an interesting experience. Um, 2009, 2010, 2011, and I learned some things while interviewing these uh, famous people. Um, I found out that Bruce Jenner, when he was still Bruce, just wanted to be loved. The moment he walked in, you could tell, Bruce Jenner wants to be loved. Chris Jenner, on the other hand, she's a scary woman. You could tell from the first moment you met her that she wanted to work the angles. And literally, I kid you not, she did not stop working the angles from the moment she walked in that room until the moment our interview was done. Guess what uh, Cheech and Chong wanted to do? <laughs> no joke, I got to interview the two of them together, and that was quite an experience. They just wanted to get high and make me laugh. It was incredible. I told the story of going to their very first gig together, riding on a Vespa, just the two of them together. And uh, it was quite a holy moment, in fact, in the interview, because they had had a broken relationship for many, many years. And when I interviewed them, it was one of the first times they had come back since that relational fracture, and they still just wanted to get high and make me smile. Uncle Phil, yes, the Uncle Phil from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, all he wanted was my associate producer's phone number, and he was relentless about it. Like, he walked in, and he, he was wearing, like, an African muumuu, and he walked in, and he's like, girl! And literally, from the second he saw her, he did not stop chasing her until he left the building, and even on his way out, he was still trying to get her to come with him. Uncle Phil. Um, supermodel Kathy Ireland. All she wanted was for somebody to take her seriously beyond her show-stopping looks. At 50 years of age, she literally walked onto our set, and my entire crew, all the males, just kind of literally did this. I mean, she's 50 and just it, it, unbelievable. But all she wanted was to be taken seriously for something other than her looks. And this kind of earnestness and this deep kind of desire she had to be looked at as something other than beautiful was just very, very clear. Olympian, Greg Luganis. Remember when he almost broke his neck on the diving board? He was looking for his next gig. It's kind of sad, actually. He didn't stop working the room to try and get his next gig the whole time he was with us. Um, also sad, Brian McKnight just wanted you to notice his white Lamborghini while Charlize Theron just wanted to get out of there, and Penelope Cruz was crying, but I didn't ask her why. Larry King talked my ear off, surprise, surprise. And Wolfgang Puck gave me the best meal I ever had until I met Jared Irvin. <laughs> Carl Reiner? He just wanted to let me into his heart. He was lovely. Interviewing him was a holy moment. I was literally speechless when I finished with him. And his manager and Jerry Seinfeld were sitting right where Trisha's sitting, because they represent Carl as well, so they came to watch him. You want to talk about nerves. It's one of the best interviews of my life. Incredible. Carl Reiner. I would call him a saint, but only the loader knows them that are his. You know what uh, no famous person ever did for me, though? None of them ever changed my life. Jesus did, though. Jesus did. Get a load of Mark 9. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, after it has come with power. 
And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So just in case you ever put your foot in your mouth, understand that uh, Peter, the bishop of Rome, uh, was wont to do so also. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. He's referring here to John the Baptist, his cousin. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. The darn scribes, they just don't quit. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed. They think probably his face was still shining from the transfiguration, like when Moses came down from the mountain. We don't know for sure, but like, why else would they be greatly amazed that Jesus had shown up and they ran to him and greeted him. And he asked them, verse 16, why are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, ha, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, this is beautiful for you and me, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, (laughs) it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. (laughs) Wait till I get to that part. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, and in the Greek, fasting. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who would be greatest the numbskull disciples. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Okay, listen to this, church. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Here it is right here. For the one who is not against us is for us. 
For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his or her reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he'd be thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What a chapter. Mark chapter 9. Okay, we have here some things that uh, happen when you meet Jesus. Big idea. All right, some things that happen when you meet Jesus. First, when you meet Jesus, okay, well, like when you really meet Jesus, you will know it. There's going to be no doubt in your mind. When you really meet Jesus, you will know it. Verse 2 says this, and he was transfigured before them. He takes them up onto a mountain. Some scholars think it's Hagemon, Mount Hermon, in the north part of Israel. You can still snowboard there to this day. Some think it's the Mount of Transfiguration a little bit further south. The reason they think it's Hermon because in the last sequence in Mark, they were in the north country. So they could have gone straight to Mount Hermon, or the, the sequence in 9 could have picked up, you know, some days later when they traveled back into mainland Galilee, where the Mount of Transfiguration is much closer. But the point is, as he takes them up onto this mountain, all of a sudden he's transfigured. His clothes go from drab Galilean, mostly gray slash brown with mud around the hems, to blindingly white, more white than any fuller could ever make it. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up, and they're conversing with him. Moses and Elijah, arguably the two most famous personages from Old Testament history. He was transfigured before them. It's important for us to know what the word transfigured means. It's also kind of fun and lets me say something kind of goofy. Transfigured means transformed. He was transformed right in front of their eyes. Jesus is Optimus Prime. He is the original Transformer. Now, you may think, that's kind of silly, Todd. Not if, like me, as a child of the 80s, you grew up when Transformers first made their way across the ocean from Japan to North America, and Optimus Prime was the coolest of all cool toys. If you had an Optimus Prime toy, I'm talking the original one, made in die-cast metal, not the plastic ones that came out when they redid the Transformers franchise. If you had that, you were like, you were king. You took that to school, and everyone was like, you're the coolest ever. And everybody who I know from that generation, when we went to go see the first reboot of the Transformers franchise, when Optimus Prime transformed from the truck into Optimus for the first time, you could literally hear everybody, you know, under the age of 40 go, <gasps> It was that cool, because you're going to see this character from your childhood transform into that character of power and glory. Opt oh, it was, it was super epic. If you haven't seen it, go and watch it. It's, it's incredible. Optimus Prime. Jesus is Optimus Prime. That, that wonder that I had when I saw Optimus transform from that Peterbilt truck into the great Autobot who's here to save the world. I mean, I had a moment of wonder sitting in the theater. Imagine how the disciples would have felt when they see Jesus go from drab Galilean rabbi to... <laughs> personage in blinding white with whom Elijah and Moses show up to hold converse. It's important to note that at the transfiguration right here, Peter, James, and John, hear me, see Jesus for who he really is. We often fixate on Jesus in his incarnation. We fixate on him in his drab Galilean peasantness. 
And we think that he is even now that marginalized, drab, Galilean peasant, born in Nazareth, spent most of his time in Capernaum, little podunk nowhere town on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. No, 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 no. Let us always hold in our mind the image of Jesus Christ, the transfigured one, the transformed one. That's who Jesus really is. And as if to drive the point home, God himself shows up in his Shekinah glory. That's what the cloud is. Remember the story of the Israelites making their way through the desert? What went with them? The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. This is the Shekinah glory. And I've told you in the past what the Shekinah glory means, right? Maybe you weren't here that Sunday, so I'll repeat it. Shekinah, in modern Hebrew, the root word is Shekinah, which means neighborhood. And so the Shekinah glory is God's neighborhood glory, the glory by which God comes and dwells with us. And it's beautiful in the text that right after Peter makes his numbskulled comment to say, this is beautiful, let's just stay here and make three tents, that God the Father shows up with his tent, the tabernacle of his presence, the Shekinah glory itself, and he drives the point home and he says these immortal words, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So here we see, very importantly, God the Father testifying as to who Jesus is. Okay, God's going to make sure you know who Jesus really is. And I'm just saying, if God the Father shows up in his Shekinah glory cloud to tell the first disciples who Jesus is, to drive home the point that he's the beloved son, that's the answer I'm going to go with whenever a question comes up as to who Jesus is. I'm just saying. If anyone ever, so who is Jesus? He is the beloved son of the Father. He is the one, God the Son, who was made man. He is the one God-man, fully man and fully God, God in a body, who lived among us in actual space-time, who was tempted in every way in which will ever be tempted, yet was without sin. In fact, who perfectly fulfilled the will of God his Father. Who was Jesus? Jesus is the perfect sacrificial lamb who in the fullness of time allowed himself to be taken to a Roman cross where he was crucified between two thieves. Why? So that the penalty for your sin and mine could be placed upon him so that he might bear it instead of us. And you're like, why should we be penalized? Because God is holy and cannot tolerate sin in any form. And because he is just, he must punish it whenever he encounters it. And this is a very big problem because we're sinful and God is holy. And so we can't approach that one who made us to be his friends from the beginning. And so God the Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Word made flesh, makes a way where there seemed to be no way in suffering and dying upon that Roman cross. And because he's God, he does not stay dead, but he arises again the third day in victory, defeating the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell once and for all. He deals a death blow to death itself. And then he ascends to his father's right hand where he sits down in victory. And that's where he is right now interceding for you. He's your cheering section. And that's the place from whence he'll come again in glory someday to inaugurate his kingdom. Woo! And to judge the living and the dead. And to invite you in. This is who Jesus is. Make no mistake, friends. And I just got to say this because I love you and I care about you. If hearing that story about Jesus, your reaction is still... Yeah, you know, I'm just not so sure about that. Totally cool. Okay? Totally cool. If you're sitting here and you're like, I'm not with you, preacher. I'm not excited about that. I'm not feeling you. I'm not with that yet. All right. Okay, no problem. Keep coming to church. Just give it time. Because the only way you could say that, and I totally get it, is because you have not yet encountered Jesus as he really is. And I want to say to you, it is not your responsibility to encounter Jesus. 
I've said this for years. God is more interested in saving souls than we'll ever be. Okay, it is God's responsibility to come to you. We can go through, I don't know, 17 different passages of Scripture if you want. While we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. We can go on and on and on. The incarnation itself testifies to this. God comes to you. So if you're not ready to get all Pentecostal and excited with me about who Jesus is yet, cool. Just keep coming. The day will come when you will encounter Jesus as he really is. (laughs) And then you watch how fully in you will find yourself being. When you do... You will know that you've really met Jesus because your life will start to transform. It'll start to change. Second point, when you really meet Jesus, real faith will start to show up in your life. These are one of the things that will change in you. Because we all know that until you meet Jesus, faith doesn't make any sense. All right? If you have a conversation with somebody who has no faith about faith, they're like, that's really weird. Believing in something you can't see. The best thing to say in that context is, I know, right? This will disarm them because they're used to Christians coming at them and trying to prove faith to them. Instead, just go, I know, it's so crazy. Someday you'll taste and see that he's good. Just play it like a dummy. It's much, much better. Right? Just smile. I know, it's so strange because you'll confound them. Right? They'll, they'll go to sleep and I'm going, he doesn't seem crazy. But she keeps saying crazy things. Either they're crazy or there's something I'm missing. And it's not your responsibility to prove anything to anyone. It's your responsibility to testify that you believe in Jesus. I believe. I believe in you, Lord. And it's your responsibility to testify to your friends when they ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You're like, well, I know this sounds weird, but it's really because of Jesus. And I go, say what? What? And if you have a conversation, great. But the moment you get to that roadblock where you come face-to-face with their unbelief, don't push. Just say, I know, it's crazy. And smile about it. Because faith is crazy until you meet Jesus. Um, let me paraphrase verses 14 through 18 to prove it to you. So Jesus shows up. The crowd goes crazy like, hey, where you been? Why is your face shining? Why are you arguing? Oh, this, this, come here, come here, whatever his name is. Moshe, come here, what's up? Listen, my son, he's got a demon. Makes him act like an epileptic. I brought him to your disciples to cast it out. They couldn't. So you like, we're kind of upset about it. Pharisees are harassing your followers because they're powerless. Jesus is like, in fact, he looks at the whole crowd and he says, how long do I have to hang out with you numbskulls? That's the modern day English version of how long shall I bear with you? And how long shall I? Be with you. Verse 19 to be specific. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Um, Here's the point that I want you to get from verse 19. Um, Jesus is faithful. We're faithless. This is normal. This is normal. I don't know if you ever felt as a Christian like you you have to have more faith. You ever felt that way? Anyone try to put that on you? Like your life is terrible because you lack faith. This is an insidious and ugly thing. No Christian should ever say that. Okay, we know that We lack faith, and Jesus is full of it. In fact, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, in the words of 2 Timothy 2.13. So here's the big idea from this sequence, where this man says, if you can do anything, please help us. And Jesus goes, if I can do anything, all things are possible for him who believes. And then this man says something so beautiful that it's been said in my own heart, like, I don't even, pick a number, 6,000 times throughout my life. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. (laughs) 
That's honesty. Okay, so if you ever felt like you needed to perform better to be a better Christian, receive your freedom today. And this father, this poor little boy, I believe, but I don't believe. <laughs> I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Nobody's got faith figured out yet. Nobody. So a few teachable points from this. Uh, don't beat yourself up. Uh, don't beat others up. All right, stop it with that. If that's your thing, stop it. <laughs> Just, I get angry about that. I'll move on as so I keep smiling. Becky told me to smile more. Am I doing good today? I'm smiling a little bit more. She rebukes me most weeks about something I did that's like bad. So I'm like, dang it. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll smile a little bit more. Yes, I will. Don't beat yourself up. Don't beat others, beat others up and ask for help. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. He asked for help. Help my unbelief. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Because, um, look, if you haven't experienced something yet that has driven you right to the edge of or even into full-blown unbelief, you will. You will. So, uh, so uh, what, what, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do about that? Well, uh, let's backtrack to verses 22 and 23 for the answer to that one. Here's what's happened to this little boy. It often casts him into the fire and the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Here's the most important point. And Jesus said to him, if you can, exclamation mark, all things are possible for one who believes. So if you found yourself in that place where suffering has pushed you to the brink of unbelief, or perhaps past it. I was there in 2012, 2013. I basically stopped talking to God for two years. Okay, I was there. If you are there, if you've ever been there, one day when you find yourself there, remember these verses. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. I'm pretty sure, and so are most of the commentators, that Jesus is talking about himself when he says all things are possible for one who believes. And wouldn't that change 90% of charismatic televangelist teaching that you've ever seen if Jesus is there talking about himself? How do we know he's talking about himself? Because in the original it's like, if you can, like he's parroting what the dude has just said. If you can help us, do something. If you can, then there's an exclamation mark, all things are possible for one who believes. So that's how I'm interpreting it. Jesus there is talking about himself. He's not trying to exhort this poor man to have more faith so somehow his son could get healed. When you are having trouble with faith, borrow Jesus's. Without preaching good or what? I can smile on that point. When you're having trouble with faith, borrow Jesus' faith because he is able. And after crying out, and convulsing him terribly, Jesus commands the spirit to come out of the boy. What happens? Convulses him terribly, and then it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. In the original language here it says, but Jesus took fast hold of him. He held him like you can hold a kid. You ever done that with a kid? Grab them from falling into a river? Grab them from falling into a pool? Grab them from tripping off the stairs? This is what Jesus does. And he is able. He took fast hold of him. 
Don't miss the urgency with which Jesus works here. Next time you find yourself in some place helpless, remember that Jesus takes fast hold of you when you cannot help yourself. He took fast hold of this boy, who everyone thought was dead, and he rouses him, and he arose. And it's my great pleasure to report to you this morning that the words for and he arose in the original language are kai aneste. And aneste, of course, comes from the root anastasis, which is, of course, the Greek word for resurrection. Next time you're at the end of your rope, put your trust in Jesus, the one who makes dead things live. That's where hope comes from, by the way. That is where hope comes from. Verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Here it is. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And yes, it's the same word. Third point. When you meet Jesus, you will realize that H-O-P-E is actually spelled R-E-S-U-R-R-E-C-T-I-O-N. That's how you spell hope. The thing I like most about the resurrection, it signifies and inaugurates a whole new way of being human. Where the first are last, and the last are first. Verse 33, and he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they uh, kept silent, for on the way they'd argued with one another over who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He took a little child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In the original there, it's whoever receives me receives not just me, but him who sent me. Fourth point, when you meet Jesus, you will realize that real greatness doesn't look like greatness at all. You like that? If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Um, this is the opposite game as far as our world is concerned. You know what Jesus is saying here? Go to the back of the line. <clears throat> and if he is who I think he is, he'll stop you every time. No, 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 Todd. <clears throat> go to the back of the line. No, son, I told you. Go to the back of the line. Read my lips. Go to the back of the line. Go to the back of the line. So, here's my encouragement to you, because I love you. Um, try living like this for one week and see how much of your life it changes. Go to the back of the line. So, your kids don't uh, clean up after themselves. You get angry? Nope. You clean it up yourself. Why? Because you're the servant of all. I cannot count the number of times in my life I have walked by something, seen it, known that one of my fool kids cast it there, got angry about it, stopped myself, stooped and picked it up for God's glory, and put it away. And they'll never know. Like, it's been thousands of times. <laughs> thousands of times. And you know what? As much as I joke about it, it's a powerful reminder to me in that moment 
that this is how Jesus, except much, much better than me, deals with the mess that I make of life. Your wife is grumpy for no reason? All you men, does your wife ever get grumpy for no reason? You're like, no, Todd, what are you talking about? <laughs> okay, so next time that happens, are you going to be grumpy right back? This is what many men do. You ever do this? You're like, fine. <laughs> Whatever. I'm going to go to the garage then and drink Bud Light. Fine. Leafs are on. <laughs> right? Stop it. You get grumpy back or lecture her? No, you're not. You'll gently bear with her in love because you're the last of all. All right. <laughs> Just indulge me for a second. I had a rough two weeks. Somebody's making your life unnecessarily difficult, bludgeoning you with their personal agenda. I have no idea what this is about. Um, do you give them what for? Which is what I want to do. I want to fight. Right? Or do you practice patience? Yeah, you got it. You practice patience. Why? Because they come first, not you. Oh, man. Uh, somebody get Anglican with me and say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Jesus' universal call to discipleship is universally difficult. Don't get it twisted. Okay? And it's not just for me. It's a, Mark is a universal call to discipleship, and it is universally difficult. The only reason to do it uh, is because it's the only way to live. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> it's the only way to live. Um, verses 37 through 50. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not just me, but him who sent me. Then John does this whole thing about, we saw this guy casting out demons. We tried to stop him because he's not with us. And Jesus says something very important. Don't stop him. Why? For the one who is not against us is for us. I'm going to come back to this. Make sure you sear that in your mind. Okay? For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water because you belong to Christ will by no means lose their reward. Then he goes into the whole millstone thing. Whoever causes one of these little ones, one of these vulnerable ones to sin, be better for him if he had a millstone tied around his neck and he'd be cast into the sea. And then he goes into one of the most hyperbolic and difficult sequences in all of the New Testament where he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. i got to tell you, every Christian teenage male I knew was tortured by these verses growing up as he struggled with internet pornography and masturbation. Am I going to hell because I think naked women are beautiful? And, oh, God, what am I going to do? And I can't tell you the number of young men I dealt with who were, like, thinking about going to extreme measures because of this ridiculously hyperbolic thing that Jesus says about cutting things off or else you're going to go to hell where it burns with an unquenchable fire. So just let me say a couple things about this real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I am kind of going for broke these days. Oh, well. All right, so look. Receive the helpless and the marginalized in Jesus' name. Why? Because when you do so, you receive Jesus himself and the Father. This is the point of verse 37. It's why we work with the marginalized, the poor, and the oppressed. Next point. Those who are not... Oh, okay, hear me. This is crucial because we get this so wrong. Those who are not against Jesus are for him. Okay, try that one on for size next time Christian elitism tries to creep into your soul, verse 40. Because we think, 
right? We think the opposite, okay? Let's read it. Those who are not against Jesus are for him. We're like, if you're not for Jesus, you're against him. doesn't say that. It says if you're not against him, you're for him. Crucial distinction. Very crucial. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but I won't. Someday when I preach in the doctrine of hell, maybe we'll come back to this verse, okay? Crucial. Keep moving, Todd. Keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. Oh, this is great. Kindness rolls back the curse. Huh? Why? Because when you're kind, you don't lose not your reward, okay? They will not lose their reward. It's not reward. It's wages. When you're kind, you won't lose your wages, which means kindness makes life less fruitless. And fruitlessness is the consequence of Eden's curse in Genesis chapter 3. So if you feel like you've been doing all this work for nothing, add a little kindness to your ethic and watch God move. Good thing you came to church, right? Do I need to repeat it or did you get it? You got it? Nick, you got it. Rebecca wants it again. Okay? All right. So he says, if someone gives you a cup of water because you belong to me, they will by no means lose their reward. Reward is wages in the Greek. If someone gives you a cup of cold water because you belong to Christ, you will, know, you will surely not lose your wages. What is the curse of Genesis chapter 3? He says to Adam, because you have done this, what will become of his work? What will happen? It will become fruitless. You're going to bust your tail to try and grow wheat, but instead the land will yield for you thorns and thistles. Okay? You shall toil and labor all the days of your life. Right? This is the curse God lays on Adam. Fruitlessness. This is why our lives feel so fruitless that despite how hard we work and despite all the good things that happen to us, we feel fruitless. So if you feel fruitless, do what Jesus says. Inject a little Jesus-named kindness into your ethic and watch God help you preserve your wages. Absolutely transformative. And most importantly, Jesus is your only hope. Why? Well, because newsflash... Verse 42 isn't just about pedophiles or kidnappers or murderers. It's not just talking about deadbeat dads and drug-addicted moms. It's talking about people like me who have gotten angry at a child for no good reason and who've unleashed their frustration on their spouse even though they're really just frustrated by life. People like me who have used their strength or ability to get the upper hand over someone weaker, who have pushed themselves to the first in line, even though they've already got plenty. Friends, the point of verse 42 is that we all deserve a millstone. We should all be one-handed, one-footed, half-blind cripples because our sin is so serious, which is why before he goes to the cross, Jesus uses hyperbole to make the point that he will hammer home as they hammer him to the cross six chapters hence. Jesus took the millstone with your name on it and he was maimed in your place for your sin. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5, and worship team, you can run to the stage. How transformative is this teaching? He took the millstone with your name on it. You're like, that's a lot of millstones. That's why he's God in a body. So he can bear the weight of the sins of the world. And he's not saying here that we should all go out and maim ourselves. His crucifixion is coming up. He's just talked about it a few verses before this moment. And he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to be maimed in your place so that you won't have to be. Somebody shout for Jesus. Yes, Lord. Yes, I'll do it for you. Yes, Lord. 
Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place for my sin. Hallelujah, Jesus. I don't know about you, but God brought me from a mighty long way. And I've been reading those verses since a young man. And I knew that left to my own devices, I'm getting cast in the sea after they cut off my limbs. Because that's exactly how sinful I am. But that is not my destiny. My destiny is to be a king and a priest to our God. Why? Because Jesus took the pain himself. Ooh, yeah, I'm preaching like T.D. Jakes. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Look, the whole salt and fire imagery in verse 49 is just sacrifice imagery. Why is it sacrifice imagery? Because Jesus knew that he was about to become the ultimate sacrifice, and he knew that throughout history Christian preachers would use this opportunity to take their congregation to Romans 12, where we would say, because he did that for you, you do the same because he laid his life down as a living sacrifice. You do the same because he did not count his divinity something to be grasped onto, but became the lowest of the low you do the same. What does sacrifice look like these days? It does not look like rams on altars. It looks like purity through suffering. And that's what the salt and fire imagery is all about. Not rams on altars. Salt and fire signify purity through suffering that I may know him. Philippians 3.10 That I may know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. And the only reason I can think of to Learn to lay my life down as a living sacrifice is because that's what Jesus did for me to save me from hell. So, verse 50. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In other words, um, now that you've met Jesus, be like Jesus. And that will change your life. <laughs>